This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 40. This is Writing Excuses, deep versus wide. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. And I'm Howard. I've shared this story before on Ryan Excuses, but it is one of my favorite stories. I once read a review of a video game that was an RPG game um, that that was known for having an expansive world. Um, and the review was critical because they said, yes, it's really, really expansive, but it's like an ocean that's an inch deep. Every town you go to has the exact same copied and pasted rooms and buildings. There's nothing to explore. All of the dungeons are exactly the same. Yeah, there's 4,000 of them. But if you just copy and paste the same three dungeons, uh, you know, 4,000 times, then you're not exploring 4,000 locations. You're going in three places 4,000 times. Mm -hmm. Um, And this has stuck with me because the more I've world built, the more I've realized that I prefer as a writer to have depth to my world building. Uh, I ran into this fallacy early in my career where I had started to get popular. I had had three magic systems in the Mistborn series. And uh, fans were starting to hear that I was working on something new, the Stormlight Archive, which was going to be big. And they started asking me, how many magic systems do you have in this one? You had three in your previous one. How many are in this one? And I'd be like, there's 30. There's 30 different magic systems. And I kind of fell into this, you know, more is better sort of philosophy. Um, and when I actually started working on the book, I realized one of the re- things that had made The Way of Kings fail in 2002, when I tried to write it the first time, was this attempt to do everything a little bit, to have 5% world building and, and characterization across a huge diverse cast and a huge setting where the book had failed because nothing had been interesting. Everything had just been slightly interesting. Uh, so I want to ask the podcasters with that lengthy introduction, um, what constitutes a deep story to you, specifically when you're talking about world building? What draws you to those stories and how do you create it in your own fiction? For me, it's um, looking at, at causal chains, uh, the, the way things link together. Um, a lot of times when I see something that is, is shallow, there's an item, but it doesn't appear to have any ripple effects. It doesn't have any effects on the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Whereas with deep things, um, you can see that there's a history and, and you can also see that there are consequences to having this thing in the world. When I'm teaching my students, I, I talk to them about, and when I'm doing it myself, I think about why, you know, why did this thing arise? What was the need that caused this piece of technology or magic to occur? Um, how does it affect everyone? And, and what is the effect, you know, with what effect does, does using it, and it's not like necessarily the personal toll, but what, what mm-hmm. is the effect on the society? And, and that's the piece for me, um, like looking at, at how it affects the, the society, where I feel like a lot of world builders fall apart because they think about the effect on the individual magic user, but not the connections yeah. between those things. So um, in, during the time that I was writing the Mirador series, there was a cyberpunk TV show called Almost Human with Carl Urban, if you remember that one. And they did that. They had this very shallow world building. I remember one of the episodes, a guy walked by an electronic billboard in a mall and it like read his retina or did facial recognition and knew who he was and called up his shopping history and offered him a product. And I'm like, oh, that's a cool detail. But if they have that technology, 
it would be in so many other places mm-hmm. in the city. It would be you. It would enable so many other things, and they didn't explore any of that, and it really frustrated me. So when I started building my cyberpunk, I'm like, well, I I can't do that with everything. I'm going to do that with here are these three or four branches of technology and just drill really deep into them and try to figure out how is this going to change society? How will the entire city feel different if all cars drive themselves, for example? And just really dig into those and try to figure out what the ramifications are. For me, the the decision point on deep versus wide uh, occurs after after I've only gone deep on as many things as I can go deep on, because I will find the one which, in conjunction with the others, gives me surprising yet inevitable. Gives me all of the pieces I need for the story to unfold in a way that's that it's going to do the things that I want it to do. And at that point, I feel like, you know, whatever that thing was and whatever pieces it touched in order to function in that way, that is where the depth has to be. Everything else I'll go wide, and if I have more budget, I'll sink an extra couple of holes over here as red herrings. But for now, that's the research that needs to be done. Yeah, you bring up an important point, which is that you can't go deep on every topic. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've been talking about this concept um, all through the year. But this idea that, you know, sometimes you do need to touch lightly on things, basically to pitch yourself um, ideas that you can catch in later books or later scenes. I, I wanted to tell a joke about the history of our solar system uh, 75 million years ago. And I was wondering how old Saturn's rings were. And so I started doing research. And what I determined is that in 2006, Saturn's rings were as old as the solar system. And in 2018, when we dove Cassini through the rings, Saturn ring, Saturn's rings are about 100 million years old and will probably be gone in the next 200 million. And and the more I looked into this, the more interesting it got. You know, the reasoning behind, you know, the math of all this, which I'll spare all you. At the end of that session, I had four hours of information in my head and zero jokes. <laughs> and <laughs> That's so, familiar. <laughs> and so I, I left all of that out because I realized, yeah, I... I can totally write things about that, but it's not going to move my story forward. It's going to make people argue because because not everybody, some people know the 2006 science. Um, I, I just have to give it a wide miss. And the point here is that portions of my week are absolutely lost in that way. I'll research something and come away with nothing useful, but I don't get to have useful things if I don't do at least some of that research. For me, where I went wrong on Stormlight Archive, um, looking back at it, when I first tried to write it was, I was a big fan of The Wheel of Time, which was at that point on its uh, 10th book, 11th book soon to come out, I believe. And I was trying to compare my series with one that had been going for 12 years. And I wanted to jump in at the 12-year mark and say, well, this is what I love about The Wheel of Time, so I'm going to write a book that evokes those same feelings without doing the groundwork and characterization that The Wheel of Time had been doing for over a decade in order to create a really spectacular experience later in the series. Um, And what I ended up doing is I ended up, you know, 
just touching lightly on all these things that I had spent my world building time on preparing. And I ended up with a story that just wasn't satisfying because of that. Have you guys ever um, been working on a book and realized I need to do a deep dive on this one topic? Uh, what made you decide to do that? And what was it? I'm, I'm actually in the process of doing that right now on The Relentless Moon. Uh, one of the things that I uh, I went a little shallow on in the um, for Faded Sky was uh, was the political situation on Earth, because most of the book takes place on the way to Mars. Well, The Relentless Moon is a parallel novel that takes place on Earth and the moon while Faded Sky is going on, which means that I actually have to dig deep. And in order to dig deep into the political situation on Earth, I have to do some a deeper dive on the climatology of the planet after the asteroid strike. Because I'm like, like, I have actually no idea, as we are recording this, whether or not the jet stream is still functional. Um, because where that asteroid strike was, it's like, it may not be. And mm. so I have to I have to sit down. I've got an appointment with with uh, someone who specifically does uh, computer modeling of this kind of thing to figure out what the climate looks like. Because I didn't need to know. Now I do. And it's, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, the radiation... Totally the, stalled on the novel right now. The <laughs> secondary radiation of the, the regolith, the soil, the dirt, the whatever on a world where there is no magnetic field shielding you from radiation and deep dove on this and came up with a quote from a Russian scientist uh, who was asked, which one's worse on the moon, the solar radiation or secondary radiation from the regolith? And the Russian scientist said, they are both worst. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which means if you don't shield against one of them, you die. You have to shield against both. Um, and But again, this is a case where I was reading for four hours before I found that moment where, and for me, you know, this is a moment where I laughed out loud. I'm like, okay, I can even say that with the Russian accent. I'm not even going to put it in the book, but the idea that the dirt can be as dangerous as sunlight on a planet uh, where there's no magnetic field uh, I can t- I can tell jokes on that until mm-hmm. until the radioactive cows come home. Yeah. Uh, in partials, I am uh, that whole series deals with a lot of different kinds of science, but there was only one of them that was in the outline. It said, you know, part of my thing was, and then Kira figures out how to cure the disease that's killing everybody, <laughs> which meant that I had to figure out how to cure a disease. Right? I could totally gloss over. All the ecology, all the genetics, all the everything else. But, and I've said this before, I never want to write the sentence, then she did some science, you know? (laughs) And so if I have my character actually using a science or a technology or a magic or whatever to solve a problem, I need to know how that works. And so I did actually enough study into virology that I was later able to convince a doctor that I knew what I was talking about uh, when my father was in the hospital. So, you know, Finding out which one is key to the plot, which one hinges the whole story, that's the one I focus as, on. As a side note, writers tend to be dangerous that way. Yes. 
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Um, let's go ahead and talk about Squid Empire. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, Dana Stoff, uh, nonfiction book called Squid Empire, The Rise and Fall of the Cephalopods, which is a discussion of, it's a, well, it's a whole book about, uh, cephalopod evolution on Earth. Uh, the cephalopods were the first creatures to rise from the seafloor. They invented swimming. Um, and uh, and then at some point, fish invented jaws, and the kings of the ocean became the ocean's tastiest snack. And, uh, and, and this book walks you through all of that. And if you're interested in world building, um, the, the discussion of this, just the way these things interoperate and interlock and unfold is uh, is useful, but it is also fun and beautiful. Awesome. And that was Squid Empire? Squid Empire, The Rise and Fall of the Cephalopods by Dana Stoff. Awesome. Um, so let me ask you this. Um, how can you take a single culture in a, say, fantasy or science fiction book um, and build a bunch of characters who all maybe come from the same background, but all express something very different. Uh, the reason I ask this um, is oftentimes I think our go-to in a fantasy or science fiction book is, we're going to have this alien, and that's going to represent this, and we're going to have this fantasy race, and they're going to represent this, or this kingdom is the kingdom of merchants, and we're going to bring in a character from the kingdom of merchants, um, uh, where... Sometimes what you end up doing is then creating a bunch of um, of caricatures or things like this in your world. And digging deep, um, I found that sometimes the best thing to force me as a writer to stretch and make sure I'm not making each of my 
my races or my worlds or my settings, each of my kingdom stereotypes of themselves, is to say, I need three characters who come from a very similar background with a very similar job, um, who are cousins and who are all distinctive individuals who offer something very different to the story. Um, and this has been a really good exercise for me in forcing my world building to stretch further, um, where I'm not just you know, pigeonholing certain people from certain countries into certain uh, roles in the story. I audition characters. Um, I mean, I have a cast of thousands in Schlock Mercenary, and I will often tell myself, okay, I'm going to be doing a scene, and there, there's a side character here who is this particular race, and I haven't represented that race before. So here are four different faces, and here are some different backgrounds, and here are some different attitudes— which one of those, which of these people gets to be in my story? Um, and then I pick one who gets to be in the story. The other three are now completely real to me. Um, and by keeping them real, by keeping those three real while the fourth is on the page, the fourth feels less like a stereotype to me. I don't know if it works for the readers because I'm making a comic strip. Um, but that's... It is actually something I think you do really well. Um when I pick up Schlock Mercenary and I get different critters from all around the the uh, the universe, I often, you know, I will often associate the main character personality with that critter, and then they start acting different, and I'm reminded, oh wait, this is a culture of a bunch of different people who all act differently, um, and you you very actually really helped me to view this in a good way, Howard. So good job. Uh, one thing that I am kind of just now really learning the depths of is the idea that characterization is action. That who a character is has very little to do with where they come from and everything to do with what they choose and, and what they do. Uh, and I think actually the hobbits in Lord of the Rings are a great example of this because from a certain point of view, all four of those hobbits are the same. They're, they're remarkably similar. But if you see one leaping recklessly into danger, it's probably Mary. If you see one screwing around and causing a problem by accident, it's probably Pippin. If you see one making a very grumpy, pragmatic choice and planning ahead, it's probably Sam. And so even though they come from the same place and they all like the same thing and given the opportunity, they will all, you know, sing a song in a bar, you know who they are and they're all very different. So, and I'm completely a agree with you that that the actions you know are the things that we judge other people by since with secondary characters we don't get to go into their heads mm-hmm. one of the ways that i uh, make decisions about which character is going to do what is that i i think about um the axes of power uh but specifically uh the way it affects uh and we've talked about axes of power on previous podcasts uh but specifically the way it reflects our self identity uh, which I find uh, kind of breaks down into role, relationship, hierarchy, and ability, and that that we have uh, we are each driven by these things, um, and each person will have one of those that is kind of their primary driver. So if I have four p- characters that are all from the same background, then I make sure that each of them has a different primary driver. So, uh, for instance, Elma, her primary driver is she's very much uh, driven by relationship and sense of duty. Um, whereas Nicole is very much driven by hi- hierarchy and uh, status. 
even though they have exactly very similar backgrounds, they're they're both astronauts. They're both the first among the first women astronauts, but they're driven by different things, and because of that, they make different choices and do different actions. So for me, it's about the driver, and that's that's one of the ways that I make differentiate uh, to to try to make the world seem richer. That's awesome. Um, we are out of time, Dan. You have some homework for us. Yes. What I want you to do is a little bit of what I did and what I talked about earlier writing Mirador is to take one thing, one kind of science or one kind of magic system, one aspect of your world, and just drill as deep into it as you can. Figure out what all of the ramifications are. I talked earlier about self-driving cars. One of the recent discoveries, someone crunched the numbers and realized that it's actually much cheaper for a self-driving car to putter around the city until you need it again rather than park itself. What is that going to do to the city? What is that going to do to the traffic? When you really take the chance to look as deep as you can into one thing, you're going to find a lot of very cool story ideas you had never seen before. Excellent. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.